0: Welcome back to the Health Tech Vision podcast, where we break down the news in health tech every single week. This week, we are joined by Catherine Church, who wears many health tech hats. She is a digital strategy consultant and has amassed 25 years experience in designing and scaling digital solutions across many, many industries, including banking, teleco, insurance, and plenty more. She... Then turned her attentions to tech for good and joined the NHS in an ICS as a CDO right before the pandemic started. And not only that, she is a women in tech evangelist and sits on the board of numerous women in tech organizations. And I, for one, am super excited for this conversation. So, welcome,
1: Catherine. Hello. Hi, James. Hi, Jess. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How has your week been? It's been a bit crazy, actually. It's been crazy in a, in a good way. Lots of really interesting uh, client engagements, NHS and uh, private sector, and some really, really exciting, brilliant conversations about uh, femtech and campaigning around getting better funding, better representation, better paths to scaling for femtech our organisation. So a really cool week.
0: Amazing. All the important conversations that we should all be having. As you will know, having listened to this podcast, I'm sure on many occasions, we do not shy away from those discussions. And uh, I have now formalised the weekly women's health slot, um, which I think we will come on to very shortly. And we will hear more about some of those conversations that you've been having this week. But before we do, uh, James, how's your week
2: been? It's been good. It's been uh, lots of events. I think anyone in health tech uh, that's not been living under a rock would probably have known that the last week or so has just been like events week. There's just been so much going on. Um so a few trips to London, uh, a few actually very good events, very good meetings of people. Um, it's good to get out and about. Um, yeah, interesting week.
0: Yeah, it's definitely been a hectic one. I, for one, cranked through four events in three days. Let's get into our first story. Now, for anyone, not even in health tech, but in healthcare, I don't think you've been able to avoid this one. But Keir Starmer announced that technology could help transform the NHS. So, Catherine... Talk to us about how Labour leader Keir Starmer thinks that we are going to save the
1: NHS with technology. What is he saying? So that was that was really interesting. Actually, he identified a number of uh, pillars that would help uh, drive the NHS to adopt technology at scale and drive outcomes. And and I have to say, I agreed with pretty much every one of the the points that he made. So essentially, what he was talking about is turning the NHS from a system of illness into a system of wellness. So let's think about how we keep people well and focus on uh, uh, prevention and uh, some of the areas that would stop people from needing the NHS which if they do get into power as being the government of the day, then they have so many levers, don't they, around environmental concerns, housing, benefits, jobs, employment, all of the 80% of the determinants of health that have nothing to do with with the NHS. So I think that's that's really helpful. So if you think about the whole of our society turning into uh, prevention, health management, and the nhs playing a critical part in that i think that's 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 really exciting and doing that at scale the second thing that he talked about was moving care and health services out of hospitals and and into the community which of course is is clearly the purpose of integrated care systems which is which is super exciting so actually and this this is my own personal view is that um, I, I think hospitals should be places that you only go to if you absolutely need what only a hospital can afford and that might be things like you know really expensive diagnostics that don't make sense to put in the community. It could be that you actually need intensive care or what you do James as a as a, an anesthetist um, uh, in critical medicine then actually that probably needs to be in a hospital. Um, or, or probably a very small number of use cases, not being a clinician, I'm, I'll be a bit uh, circumspect around that. But actually then if we can take um, health and social care as an integrated proposition to where people are, then um, that's that That was the second um, pillar of, of what Keir Starmer was saying. And I'd really like to come back to that actually in the context of, of the women's health strategy, because that's a really important part of, of what we're trying to do with the women's health strategy, so that's that's pillar number one. Let's think about wellness. Pillar number two, let's take care into into the community and and where people are. The third one, which I thought was great, was the 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 role of technology and um, uh, innovation. And his closing, this I thought was 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 so exciting, was that in his closing paragraphs he recognised how difficult it is for startups and smaller tech companies to get off the ground with the NHS. And that's what I hear again and again from uh, uh, female founders and femtech founders is that the NHS is just impenetrable. You have to go through dozens of hoops and small pilots um, to get any kind of engagement um, to get your startup off the ground. And there are so many routes in for for innovation through um, academic health science networks, and just it's really confusing landscape. And he acknowledged that and said that the NHS needs to do a lot better at becoming an intelligent buyer of of uh, digital services. And I thought that 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 was really exciting. That that would make such a massive difference to encouraging innovation. Uh, and enabling, you know, tech startups to to really thrive in the space.
2: Yeah, I think it's great that it's come out. It's great. It's great that he said this. And I think, you know, there's quite a high probability that we'll have a Labour government. I would say. And I think part of the role of the government of the day, especially the PM of the government of the day, is to set the vision and 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 really come out and say what they care about. Because that is then going to influence what the ministers then try and do, what the junior ministers then try and do. And when you look at the structure of the NHS and how that comes down to the arm's length bodies, as well as the Department of Health, places like HEE, although I I gather disappearing, NHS England, et cetera, et cetera. If the PM has come out and said that something is important, the, the, the... Secretary of State for Health, therefore, has it as a priority. Therefore, the ministers and junior ministers have that as a priority. So I saw it a bit with Matt Hancock. He liked technology. He wanted. He was championing technology. He was certainly trying to go down that route. And you saw that filter down. You saw that when you set vision like that, when there is a 50-50 of, oh, should we optimize for technology or this other thing, you're going to you know, those decisions are going to be made downstream to optimize for technology. So I do think it's a good thing that a potentially future PM has come out and said this stuff. Now, I do think that has to be balanced. And I've spoken to quite a few people on this, and actually people within healthcare, even members of the Labour Party that, that are within healthcare about this. And I will say that there is out there in ether a little bit of disappointment with some of the ways this has been communicated or indeed I guess how far this has gone in terms of an actual plan the the criticisms that I've heard are potentially that this is that, like the how is missing a bit the things that he's talking about have been problems for a long time and actually to suggest that they are correctable in one parliamentary term is perhaps naive at best perhaps trying to get votes at worst and so i think there is a bit of that and the other bit is how how is this going to be paid for i think you know talking about great use of the nhs app and always these things. Are, I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie. These things are great. Like things are absolutely great. I think crystallisation of the how will be important. I also think that saying it is incredibly important and good that it has been said. Um, I the, the balance, I guess, comes from me. That comes from me is is though to to cautionary, be cautionary around the fact that I I don't know how much is achievable in one parliamentary term. I don't know how much of that has been attempted by governments, the last two or three governments and the difficulties that they've had doing it, particularly, as I say, around you know the likes of Matt Hancock really trying to champion it. So I think it is going to be difficult, but as I say, um, glad that it's been said and glad that if we are going to have a Labour PM, if we are going to have this government in, that w- we now have something to hold the guys to task on. And so um, I hope that filters down to the willingness of... The ministers the arm's length bodies and the department of health and social care to actually do the work and put the budget and resources behind it to actually make this happen and i think as a health tech community we then have to hold these people accountable because i think we can hold this up now we can hold that big report we can hold this article we can hold this up and just say well you said this and so yeah let's let's see
1: Exactly. Exactly. I, I think I think you're 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 absolutely spot on. What's been said can't be unsaid, and it's now about how do we hold the government to account for the yes. delivery of that. And there's just a couple of things you said there that that, that that prompted a couple of thoughts with me, which is in terms of the the execution. So the what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? I wasn't around for the national program for IT, but I gather that one of the things that 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 really caused it to fail was the fact that it was something that was seen that was imposed from the outside without enough consultation so i wonder whether you know whether the the idea is to learn from some of that and actually think about how you engage and define the what you're going to do so we know we're going to do something what are we going to do has to be by engagement with local system leaders and the the digital community within within the nhs and I think you can probably learn a lot from the National Programme for IT. Um, I, As I say, I wasn't involved in it, but it looked like a bloody good idea to me to procure some of the core systems that we need at scale to do these things at scale. One of the things that drives me mental is every single tiny organisation reinventing the wheel every single time. It just baffles me why GPs want to buy their own telephony it just baffles me also, coming from a banking background, why every single GP would want to have their own uh, website and would want to have their own triage system. Why a clinician would care about baseline, no really underpinning digital technology. It should be there in the background. It should be there at scale. It just enables you to personalise and deliver what you're really good at, which is being a clinician without having to worry about maintaining or even building tiny, tiny little applications. So if the plan is, let's do something at scale, but let's do it by engaging system leaders, because there's now 42 ICSs, there's there's some amazing digital talent in the NHS. So if we can use these structures to actually kind of say, what do we do at scale? How do we design some applications that will really drive health forward? and have the enterprise architecture so you can plug in innovation really easily, then I think we're going to turn the dial. I genuinely think that's the right approach.
0: Yeah. And I think all of this really echoes actually a um, conversation that was had on uh, one of the events we went to this week, which one was it? Digital health cocktails with uh, Wayra, AWS and Albion VC and early bird VC. And what, what was said was that ultimately, you know, there is a huge potential for technology, but ultimately what it comes down to is system level transformation. And we've talked about this before. That is a seismic shift. That's not a small undertaking. And actually the approach we've often, previously and even currently, still take with technology to your point, Catherine, is that we're layering solutions on top of solutions, on top of a system that isn't yet working. And actually we need to go back to the system and either reconfigure the system or or start from scratch. But that's a really difficult undertaking. Um, And I haven't actually read this in in any great detail, but I wonder if there's that much there's enough acknowledgement of that, that actually technology has a really huge role to play here. But it's more than just the technology. It, It starts with something else before we bring in the technology to enable these changes and fix these problems because we know that it's a system that's overstretched, that's overburdened, and there are some really immediate problems that have to be solved. But I also appreciate the need for that big vision, you know, not just for an election campaign, but also at a time where we have multiple public sector services that are struggling and under strain. We are experiencing issues in the economy. We need hope right now. And I think that is ultimately probably what this... The purpose that this serves right now. And you're absolutely right that it is something that we can now hold the Labour Party accountable for if and when they do come into government. Um, so I think that that is exciting. And it's also worth saying that if anyone wants to uh, read a summary of James's response to this declaration from Keir Starmer, they can check out the Times uh, letters to editor section <laughs> where uh, he laid that out uh, in no uncertain terms.
2: The thing, the, what, what I will say about that, though, let me just jump in a sec on that because obviously I had a reaction to this as, I, as I've just said and like you know providing some balance and all that kind of thing. It's just quite it's just quite interesting that it, obviously if it's going to get picked up anywhere, it's going to get picked up by like a right. If you're even slightly critical, it's going to it's going to get picked up by like a right wing paper and then like you get a letter letter to editors in the Times. What I will say that if you are going to read that. I am still very glad that Keir Starmer has said it. I am still very glad that we can hold that account and we're actually going to get some stuff happening in healthcare. It's not as if I'm just being openly critical of Keir Starmer because uh, I dislike his politics or anything like that. just want to put that on the record. It's more that apolitically someone has said a thing. Okay, great. How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to do it? I work in this sector. It matters. But yeah, before anyone just thinks that I'm just some like wild fascist that has just like openly criticised the left wing government, that's not the case. Because I'm not sure how many people will actually go and read that letter, but it's not it's not that critical. I'm just all I'm saying is, is you can't you can't just say some stuff like let's actually see some stuff. That's all I'm saying.
1: Yeah, exactly. And just to build on your point there, just not having been in the NHS for a huge amount of time, but what I have seen is that the NHS and and certainly. Clinicians don't like being told, so I think you know that there's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. If they come out with a massive big digital strategy for the NHS in a pre-election period, then um, without doing that engagement, then the reaction from everybody would have been the reaction that Tim Ferriss got with EPR <laughs> convergence, which is like, ah. yeah, you know, yeah, How do how, do, theory, how yeah. do you know how yeah, do you yeah. know that this is the right thing to do? mean, again, look at, you know, look at the reaction to the federated data platform as a concept, as the supplier is different. That's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But even as a as a concept, so there's just something here about getting the buy in of this complex system so that you can do the stuff that's actually going to land and stick.
2: I completely, I completely agree. And actually, th- that's what fascinates me about politics, because I think you, I've actually written it here Like you've got I think you've got your intention if you're if you're the labor party or you know whoever's earmarked for secretary of state for health and and those ministers like you've they've got an intention of clearly what they want to do once elected but then you need to figure out from a communications perspective how you communicate that mandate in order to get elected and then based on those two things you've then actually then got to go and get done what you said you'd get done now if you over egg it to get the votes you're going to be held to task on something you can't achieve something that previous governments haven't really given too much of a thought to like they don't seem to mind um but then if you under egg it and you're going to just say what you know you can definitely do well you're probably not going to say anything at all so i i i sympathize i i I sympathize massively with like you want to you want to display ambition and vision, and that's what's going to buy you votes because we know that politics is just so. But it's often won a lot, well, very clearly won and lost on emotion quite a lot, and so you want to tap into that emotion with the big vision, all those things. But when it comes to how far you go, it's it's, it's a knife edge, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I I think there's a really interesting lens here around femtech and women's health. Um, So last year, as we know, the government uh, or Department of Health and Social Care published the first women's health strategy, which was really welcome, although didn't, in my mind, focus anywhere near enough on digital um, and and data. But in exactly the same way, we've got a declaration of intent. We've got some eight core priorities, over 100,000 women participated in that. There's a clear mandate for change And now we have the ability to hold the government to account and say, right, you you had a strategy, let's see what you're gonna do with it. And there's some good stuff. There's some really good stuff happening. You can see, so free HRT, for example, removing prescription charges um, around HRT, absolutely massive. Um, Next year, for the first time ever, um, uh, junior doctors or, or doctors in training will have mandatory training on the menopause, which, believe it or not, Excellent. has never been compulsory in, in doctors' training, and that's just unbelievable. Women's Health Hubs, so that's that's a uh, a policy commitment that's been made that's got some funding. I would say not enough funding, but the request and the requirement to each ICS to set up a women's health hub, so bringing women's health services together in a location that's either physical or digital or hub and spoke and i'm working on the digital part of that and i think there's a massive place for digital here to play in terms of femtech and there is so much incredible innovation happening there and we can use the women's health hubs as a way of channeling and have a route for some of this incredible technology to make its way into the delivery of women's health services That's an amazing vehicle. That's a really strong vehicle. But now what we need to do is keep holding people to account. You said you were going to do this. We have a strategy. You're committed to it. Now we need to see where the funding is going to come from for the next stage and see that continued commitment, because otherwise it's easy to have a strategy. To your point, James, it's really easy to say something and go, yeah, we have a strategy. Well, so what? What are we going to do about it? Hmm.
0: Hmm. it strikes me it's funny you talk about the the women's the women's health hubs because uh, like I was saying earlier that ultimately system level transformation is is really hard and ultimately it's often easier to start from scratch and given that this is an example of a new part of the NHS for example it would be a great Vanguard opportunity to really define what those systems are should look like and then take that learning and roll it out in other places across the NHS so wouldn't it be really exciting if actually women's health could be leading the way in some of this transformation because I think that that would do so much for transforming the narrative around women and their experiences of healthcare too but also in really initiating the change that we want to see right across you know the national
1: health health service too. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think there's other, there's other massive, massive benefits from focusing in on women's health. So, so one, the opportunity, as you say, to design new services and really bring in technology across women's lives. So we've got technology, you know, about informing us of the things that that we need to understand around our health to uh, monitoring and tracking apps through all the way through to um virtual consultations and group consultations uh and education sessions around menopause. So so it's a real kind of like end-to-end whole life continuum, whereas a lot of other areas where digital health has 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 been reasonably successful, like hospital at homes is very, very clinically focused and clinic um, and focused on a a really small cohorts of of, of citizens. But I think also the other thing is the majority of of, of femtech companies are founded by women, which means that that those companies tend to create more jobs for women in tech. So two and a half times more roles for women in, in female founded companies than male founded companies. And that also the environments tend to be more conducive to women staying in technology careers and thriving in technology careers as well. And then also the fact that well-known that that female-founded companies tend to offer better returns on investment than male-founded companies. So actually, by investing in in femtech to address women's health, you'll bring more women into tech careers, you'll enable more women to thrive in tech careers, you're creating better value for UK PLC. So as as an economy, because the companies tend to have better ROIs, and if the NHS or the, the public sector steps into this as a whole, you'll actually be addressing diversity and inclusion in tech careers and addressing some of that gender pay gap. So I can't see that there's not one bit of our overall tech ambitions that can't be, um, that can't be addressed in some part by investing in, in women's health and women's technology.
0: Well, I think the stars have aligned perfectly to take us into our second story of the day. I have joked over the last couple of episodes about making my unofficial women's health slot on this podcast official. I think we've been successful in doing that. But what I will say is this takeover of women's health for the last couple of episodes has been somewhat unplanned. So I promise that is the case, but it's interesting. And I think as as you've so rightly said there, Catherine, it touches the entire health system and everything we know about health and people's experiences of health. So this next story has been brought to us by Anna Brine in Wired. And the headline is how to close the gender health gap women's healthcare and outcomes have long come second to those of men, but new initiatives and a wave of health tech innovators may finally rebalance this. So I feel like that kind of summarizes exactly what you just said there. But what is interesting to me is that the article kicks off by telling the story of Christina, who is at at the beginning, a a healthy 20-year-old woman. And It really struck me as I read through this that it's quite a harrowing story to read, but actually is not really that departed from the experiences of myself and many women around me. And it talks about how she starts off by suffering with heavy periods and cramps that become too painful to manage. And it goes through her experience of being recommended hormonal contraceptives like nine out of 10 women in the same scenario. It talks about then eight years later, she's finally diagnosed with endometriosis after visiting seven different doctors. And she's tested for many different conditions and has lots of different um, diagnostic procedures that are, you know, quite invasive and unpleasant, I think, to experience and go through. Um, And Ultimately, she is told that there is no cure and that she may even have to have a hysterectomy to have her womb removed altogether. She finally then later becomes pregnant. It talks about her experience of pregnancy and then leans into her experience of menopause as well. Um, and interestingly, you raise the women's health strategy here because it, it talks about the women's health strategy and it talks about how, you know, that is built on some of the personal accounts of women that they have shared through their health. Um, But also in some perfect synergy, for those of you who listened in last week, you know we will have heard from Dr. Michelle Griffin who is a women's health expert and she's also quoted here saying that part of the problem is around women's health not being considered a sexy specialism. particularly amongst a gender imbalanced research community because it's not seen as interesting, dynamic, or innovative um as a part of health tech. But that sounds to me like a quite a contrast or quite departed from your perspective of what how you perceive women's health and how you actually think it can touch so many parts of of the healthcare
1: system. So what's your take on this one, Catherine? So, I, I mean, the story is is horrifying, absolutely horrifying, and just repeated for so many women. I think there's a couple of angles. There's there's the the, the human pain, you know, caused by endometriosis diagnosis. Diagnosis taking eight years. It's eight years on 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 average. So there's there's the kind of human pain. There's also the the human pain of one in ten women probably leaving their careers as a result of of the menopause which just seems even more cruel when you think how hard it is for women to get to senior roles in tech in particular and then to be hit by the menopause and caring responsibilities it's just just horrendous so i think there's a, there's an economic argument for for investing in in making things better in terms of of women's health but i'll just also come back to the fact that that, that this is this is lifelong. We have different needs at every every point of of, of our life, and I think that digital and um, femtech can really address and bring that to bring that together. So I get really excited about this. Also, kind of like thinking that there's there's work that we need to do on creating that economic argument, because um, the 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 kind of like human care argument hasn't hasn't turned the dial has it yet, and it, and. As the article is saying, they don't see this as being a particularly sexy or area to invest in. But some of the work that we're going to do with, with Wired is hopefully going to look at really understanding the economic impact. So what does it mean to UK PLC to have um, women unable to work, to have women exiting uh, the workplace as a result of, of, of menopause? And I think that's that's really interesting. And it has to start with the data, and where the the article is absolutely spot on is that we have such a paucity of data on the impact of women's health on our lives, um, as I say, on on the economy. So we have to start with getting that data, which gives us the, the the empirical basis for the case to change, which allows for the investment to follow. But I'm I'm super enthusiastic about this, and I think the number of of amazing. Um, femtech startups and some of the movement that we're starting to see in investing at scale shows that there's a bit of hope. And I would join that back up to the Keir Starmer statement right at the very beginning, which is we need to take care out of hospitals. We need to think about wellness and we need to invest in technology. And I would hook that up with also what he said about the NHS becoming a more intelligent buyer. These are my words, not his, more intelligent buyer and easier to do business with link that up with the economic case for change by addressing women's health issues and hold them to account if they do get into power over the next five years.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, what you say there about like data is, is super interesting because in this article, it says that it uses the example of a sleeping pills opidum in the US, which releases more slowly in women's bodies than men and still has an effect on women the morning after they take their dose, which then resulted in the FDA having to adjust the dosage for women after a number of high profile driving accidents, which raised awareness of the problem. And I think this is super interesting because it's not necessarily just about capturing data around hormonal health, for example, and women's health conditions. It's actually about when we do research understanding the data we need to capture from the women participating in that research versus the men because those experiences are going to be different and they're going to be different elements that are impacting you know a biological or physiological response to whether it's a medication whether it's a treatment uh whether it's a preventative measure and that for a long time it's those measures that haven't being captured um, you know for example i think we've mentioned this before where women are in their menstrual cycle or where they are in their you know hormonal lifetime um all of those kinds of things that actually that those nuances haven't been captured but actually ladder up to making quite a big difference in terms of how we manage different people's care but what i will also say is I found super exciting is that Wired have joined the dots between the women's health problem and actually the fact that some of these challenges can be really successfully addressed by technology. Um, And it name checks a lot of um, the companies that we frequently talk about on this podcast and everything that they're doing and how ultimately all of that creates a much better experience for women as they navigate life, whether it's related to the menopause or whether it's because they've had a stroke or might be predisposed to diabetes, they might be, uh, you know, pre-diabetic or whatever. Um, I think all of those layer up to really changing the narrative around um, that that gender health gap. Because I think there's almost two different parts of that gap, isn't there? It's around women's experiences of those conditions or those issues that they face because of their, let's call it hormones, but related all the way from puberty or through to menopause, but also then the conditions that both men and women experience and the disparity between whether it's outcomes or whether it's experience. Um, and both are obviously inextricably linked, but I almost feel like there's two parts of that story. And it comes back to what, we talked about with Keir Starmer's statement that ultimately you tackle a part of this,
1: it has a knock-on effect
0: further down the line. Um
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think uh, yeah, absolutely. The article mentions Caroline Criado Perez, um, which you know it's is is spot on in this context that the world sees women as smaller versions of men. We're just men but slightly different. And actually to to your point, unless we really start to capture gender data, unless we really start to um, create and design research which is fundamentally based on the fact that women are different um, uh, to men in every single possible way, and acknowledge those differences and design treatment drugs, whatever it is, in you know, in in the knowledge of those of those differences, then we're just going to carry on exacerbating these these health disparities. I mean, the number of women who die of heart attacks because medics don't recognise the symptoms of of a woman's heart attack as being very different to the symptoms of a man's heart attack. I mean, those kinds of things are, are, are absolutely shocking, aren't they?
0: Yeah, they are. But what I will say is that I think I take huge amounts of joy in the fact that we're able to have these conversations here on this podcast and that these conversations are happening in public forums and other places increasingly with huge gusto. And I think all of that, We, I have talked a lot before about, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation and not so much action, but what I'm increasingly seeing is that it is in part, these conversations that are spurring on some of that action and some of that change. And I think, you know, th- there's also an element of certainly me sitting in an echo chamber where everyone's really fired up for this. But I do actually think that we are seeing change and we can be encouraged by that. And I think talking about the opportunity and ultimately how we make healthcare and health better for everyone is such an important conversation to be having and and hopefully be able to start seeing some of the fruits of that so we can start extrapolating that across you know, so many different conditions and actually the way that we structure care. Um, as you said, and, and considering who accesses what sort of care at what point in their journey and getting the right people into hospital at the right time and actually redirecting people to a better place for them to have a better experience and better outcomes. So I, yeah, I love
1: talking about this, obviously, as I keep saying and continue to say week on week. I think the time is now to be much more vocal about demanding what it is that we need in terms of women's health. So we're going into an action. You've got a, you know, a, a, a potential Prime Minister coming in, making some really clear statements around the use of technology in the NHS and designing different models of care. I think we need to be linking what we need in women's health. So changes in legislation uh, around research, changes in prioritization of uh, where funding is going to go. And there's there's something that struck me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Rishi Sunak declared that we were going to be the unicorn kingdom and also then declared that he had a hundred million pound task force for um, AI to go and investigate and, and look at AI. Well, so if we can put hundred million pounds into uh, you know, investigating and regulating AI, why couldn't we put five, 10, 15 times that amount into enabling a really good ecosystem of femtech to flourish, uh, to flourish and to be Uh, to be supported through the public sector in a way that allows that technology to to scale and and be driven and be picked up, overcoming some of the disadvantages of how the NHS is structured and how hard it is for for technology to, to flourish. So I think there's probably some real calls to action that we could have in our echo chambers, but reaching out to all the other echo chambers and having a small number of really distinct asks going into this next election period. And if those can be picked up, then James said to where we started right at the very beginning, that that becomes things that we can hold politicians accountable to.
0: The other point that we actually have, we've talked a lot here about the public sector in the NHS. And I think it's really, it's encouraging to see that governments and the health system are sitting up and taking notice but we also know that first and foremost you know particularly now budgets are stretched there is only a certain amount of money to go around and that has to be prioritized and there is for sure responsibility with the government and with the public sector but we also know that a lot of these innovations are VC funded um and there is a huge amount that goes on on the the private sector side, and I think it would be remiss of us to not at least nod to that but, and the challenges that actually we see there, because ultimately these things these two have to kind of marry up, and it comes it does come down to funding again, and and the challenges that that we see there. And I think you know that that whilst it's encouraging to see this this movement, this conversation happening in that space, I think we need to see it reciprocated in in the investment community too, and. We need, as you said, that 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 personal human story isn't cutting through right now, and so I think we need to probably get better at creating an economic argument because that's what funders will sit up and listen to, um, and we know that you know that the likes of all underrepresented founders we know that this um the downturn from investment hits them disproportionately compared to other founders and so I think we need to perhaps look at how we are positioning these where we're not being able to get that cut through and form some kind of I guess like energy and motivation from the investment community as well and it sounds I think like it's stirring but I still think that there's
1: clearly a way to go. Couldn't agree more. Maybe we need a charter. maybe we need a femtech charter for investment houses to sign up to with some commitments and some pledges.
2: What well, the only thing I wanted to say on this, and it's been it, for me, it's just been great listening to you guys talk about it. But I, I said, I think I said last week that I'm on. I feel like I'm personally on like. Like a bit of an education journey here, because as a as a male in this conversation and being part of these conversations more broadly, and and the recipient of the privilege when it comes to this, it's a, it's it's an awkward place to sit when I don't feel fully informed. And you know, cry me a river. But at the end of the day, I am just trying to educate myself on it. and, And I think, but I do think that's actually applicable more broadly because this is a really, really, really good article, by the way, for anybody anybody in the space that wants to learn about this because what they do is they take a they take an actual example and tell you the actual patient story of someone through the system. And then there's an analysis and the analysis is incredible. Je- Jess, you mentioned it, but like the way that the analysis ties in things like the data gap to begin with, the fact that the clinical trials largely have male participants and then that therefore affects the efficacy of drugs that therefore affects this that therefore it ties in medical schools it ties in all this stuff so i just for people listening that article is so good at making you or allowing you to understand this space from a few different vantage points and i've not seen an article so well written what i liked about this argument this article is it doesn't play the blame game it's not blaming clinicians for not knowing this stuff. It's not blaming medical schools for not teaching this stuff. It's just saying where we are. And I think that's nice because at the end of the day, without that blame, there's there's less emotion. Without the emotion, there's no defensive rebuttal to this. And actually, there's more just a conversation that I feel like I could be part of, which is like, oh, okay, there's some clear, clear bits here that like, I absolutely resonate with. I I, like. I'm one of the forty percent, forty one percent of medical students that weren't really taught about it. I'm one of that percentage of doctors that has to Google what the menopause actually is every few months when I do get a patient patient that you know, or whatever it is. Like I, I think that the acceptance that this is just where we are, and I think broadly we're in a spot where all these different parties need educating. I think that's a really important point. The other thing I would say is that everything that you've, that you've sort of come on to, which is charter for investors and and the investors will need returns. And therefore, how do we get the returns, of the business models? I actually think, I don't know people bang on about like, you know, policy being boring, but actually you're absolutely right, Catherine, in that we're going into an election period where policy is going to be set, where new directions are going to be set. And actually, if, with with the deep thought around what are the policy changes necessary that would bring about the incentives to incentivize investment in the startups building the tech and even go further than that well what are the incentives needed for those organizations to adopt the tech what are those in, what are those incentives that are needed for those leaders of those healthcare systems to incentivize the organisations to want to adopt the tech, do you have, do you set up financial rewards for the adoption, of the, or blah blah blah, or is there pots of money for women to do? But so much of this actually comes down to policy, and again, it links back to what we said right at the start. The objective of the PM or future PM in in those statements is to set vision and to set direction, and to lead. And that is the role of that. Well, that's what policy also does, by the way. Because as soon as you set the policy, then actually so much happens downstream in terms of the decisions and the economies that end up being set up and all those different things that the policy being set here becomes incredibly important. So I would say if you're going to lobby anybody, and you're going to put As a sector, we're going to put our energy into anything. And I like what you said about some specific things that we write in this charter or that we do, that we lobby for. These specific things should be to specific either arm's length bodies or to those junior ministers, ministers, secretary of state for health, PM, however high you want to go up on that. But if you're going to write something that's going to make change, it's going to be a costed essentially document that tells those people why they should change policy and what it will lead to. Because ultimately, if it brings about the change that exactly like you guys have talked about, then, well, I think there's two things. I think ultimately- the benefit, the benefit of policy is both top-down and bottom-up. So by changing the policy, you influence things top-down. And actually, as I say, you're going to change the, the incentives and what people want to do in order to get economic return, and you change things that way. The other thing that you can end up doing is really putting a rocket up people bottom up. And actually, this is the role of the media as well, and partly what we're doing here at a smaller scale, but the likes of Davina McCall and Channel 4 and her new documentary on there, which is mentioned in this article about the menopause and women's health and all those different things, that creates the demand bottom up. Now, when you align those two things, you've got a swell of people population that want women's health change, and you've got policymakers that can set policy and win votes, then you've got the perfect storm to actually make a change, in my opinion. So it is a dual approach of media influencing the population. And like you've both said, making sure that voices are heard right now. And now is the time. Voices are heard that we want this. But then from a policy perspective that, hey, by the way, we should do a bit of lobbying there to be like, If you set a few policies and change a few incentives, you're going to win a lot of votes here. And actually, all of a sudden, you know, however messy it is, you start to get actual change.
1: Well, this week,
0: we have only got to two stories, but you know what, I'm really loving the intense conversation that we're having and getting really deep into fewer stories. Um, Because sometimes we coast through five, but actually it's been really nice to really interrogate these two stories, which are both really important and clearly really well linked. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I have loved hearing all of your perspectives. But for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment and what's got you excited.
1: Uh, Oh, so many things that are so super exciting. Absolutely brilliant. So I'm working with the national team around the digital blueprint for women's health hubs, which is just awesome. Just absolutely awesome. So how do we bring digital technologies into women's health hubs? That's amazing. Um, and then working with a few ICSs to kind of work out how they're going to deliver some of these things. So starting to shape some work around that. Um, I'm working uh, to pull together some of those campaign messages that we were just talking about around women's health. So bringing together women from the investment community, founders, policymakers, um, clinicians, clinicians, So we're coming together uh, in about two or three weeks to start to really articulate some of those messages going into into the next election uh, campaigns. Um, And then I'm doing some really cool stuff with um, NHS organisations around scale digital programmes as well as working with the most incredible emerging talent company, Grace. So what we're doing there is, enabling young women to come into, consider and uh, come into tech careers and, and really thrive in tech careers. So really, really important and exciting work. And it all just comes back to the same thing, getting more women into tech, delivering solutions that actually make the world better for women.
0: I completely agree. And that is all such important work. And I, for one, am really looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. So, how can anyone who is listening get in touch with you and find out more about what you're up to and how they can maybe get
1: involved? So Catherine Church on LinkedIn and then I can pick that, pick that up. Um so yeah, LinkedIn's my channel of choice. So i um, you know, there's I've got loads of incredible women in my network who are really supporting this, but I'm a bit of a one-woman band at the moment. So LinkedIn's the platform I would love women to reach women and allies actually women and allies we are 51 percent of the population but there are another 49 percent who can absolutely help and support us so calling all allies um as well
0: perfect well thank you so much it has been an absolute pleasure and uh have a great rest of your week to you and all of our listeners